Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So welcome everybody. Um, this time I see so many familiar faces, so it's really, I feel very at home here. I actually felt at home in Toronto yesterday too, but it's uh, more at home today. And, and it was even funny because I left the Days Hotel where I'm staying downtown and I walked out to take a cab to come here and the same driver was standing there <laughs> as yesterday. And so I said, thank you so much for coming back this morning to pick me up. <laughs> so that was kind of nice, too, just a very homey feeling. And um, and I know that you're probably, well, My I have a friend here, and she was quite embarrassed about the garbage strike. She's a very neat person who does things very impeccably and beautifully and she kept saying oh Toronto doesn't usually look like this and I said but there's something um I don't know in the states it's not so neat and tidy I guess I feel at home with the, uh the garbage too so. <laughs> so how many people were not here or not in the group yesterday uh A couple of you. Okay, so everybody else. So yesterday we did, we talked obviously about working with children and um, I introduced myself as somebody who has devoted much of my professional life to working with kids and families. I started out teaching Head Start um, and then also co-founded a school for some of the most severely abused and neglected kids um, in the, little kids in the metropolitan Boston area. So I have I really went from working with some of the most severely abused and neglected and disturbed um, and poor children in our country to um, my present state, which is teaching meditation to people who are, all of us, so privileged to be able to come and take the time and have the, as Michael was saying at the end of the, end of the day yesterday, I, I so appreciated, well, so many things you said, but but it, but that too that just the that immense gratitude for the privilege that we enjoy to be able to do this um, to have met the Dharma to have met these teachings of course but also then um, to be able to have a life that allows us to to gather like this and and do this together. I had the opportunity to travel with my first 
Zen teacher, the Korean Zen master, De Sansanim, on a month-long pilgrimage to Big China right after it opened in 1985, and it was still a time when people there were all wearing blue pajamas, and it was very different. I haven't been back, but friends of mine have, very different then. And um, I remember going to a temple in in uh, Xiaoguan where the temple of the sixth ancestor of Zen and <clears throat> and on the way up to the temple there are all these people just hawking anything that anything that a westerner might conceivably buy and one of the and I talked I stopped and talked with a woman who uh, her fingernails the ends of her fingers were just completely kind of gone, like her fingernails were just sort of gone because her job was um, digging and doing construction work, but she didn't have shovels, like she used her hands. And I remember seeing her hands and just, it was, it was like a snapshot into so many beings, human beings in this planet, working in ways that I can't even imagine, you know, that we probably can't even imagine, you know, just this sudden flash of um, just this, these endless, endless dimensions of different worlds, and some of them quite suffering, quite suffering worlds. So what I wanted to speak about today uh, was the theme of sila, we call it. It's one of the three foundations of all uh, Buddhist psychology and Buddhist practice across all the three traditions of uh, Theravadas and um, Vajrayana. And these three foundations are in Sanskrit um, Shila, Pali, Sila, Samadhi, which is the same in both, and um, Panya or Prajna. And Sila means integrity or ethical living. And <clears throat> samadhi is the meditation, that ability to become uh, very absorbed in our inner life and all the experiences that belong to the range, well, pretty much everything we could experience in meditation. And um, panya or prajna is the intuitive wisdom that grows out of uh, the meditation practice. And what's interesting, Michael and I were talking about this yesterday when I told him that I really want to talk about sila, or the ethical living aspect of the practice, because it gets short shrift, and sort of for obvious reasons, because it seems like we're going to hear a a kind of um, lecture, I don't mean, maybe a lecture of the sort of, you know, you should be good, and here's how, and and it's not often talked about in a very interesting way, but to me, an interesting way to look at it is um, the activity of respect or even love, that it's an expression of that. And it's not just a set of rules that are imposed from the outside to try and control us, um, but really an expression of our understanding or realization um, in how we live. And so I want to just focus on that this morning in um, meditation and psychotherapy. In the meditation teachings, 
it's always taught that you can't really be very, you know, you can't really go very far in your practice if you don't have a foundation or basis of ethical living. And the Eight Noble Path, the Eight Steps um, to Awakened Living and to Happiness that the Buddha laid out are divided into these three foundations that I just mentioned. And the Sila, I say Sila because I'm in the Theravada tradition. Michael says Sheila. Uh, the Sila component is the part that has to do with wise livelihood, uh, wise behavior, and wise speech. Those, that's sort of that part of the path. Um, and the other parts have to do with mindfulness and concentration and wisdom and, and so forth. And these very practical things of how we live and how we act and how we speak, um, it's considered that if, if there's any um, area of deception or deliberate, intentional harming or carelessness even, that it gets, it's difficult to settle down in our practice. I mean, it makes sense that if we spent the whole day out, you know, killing and stealing and looting, that we're not going to really want to sit down and meditate and be with ourselves in silence. Um, We're going to avoid that experience. But it's also sometimes hard. It's it's been something that has been um, kind of a koan or an interesting, perplexing question for me when I look around because... Sometimes I see people who seem to be quite accomplished meditators, but then how they're living doesn't seem to quite fit that. And I think, but they're not supposed to be able to concentrate if they're not living in a court. But I think sometimes that maybe the Buddha underestimated our capacity for compartmentalization. (laughs) And... um, But it actually is possible for people to split off and compartmentalize parts of their life and self and um, still get you know, very concentrated in their meditation. But what's not possible is to live like that and to really feel deeply peaceful and at home in one's life and one's skin without shame. The, the kind of peacefulness or happiness, it's called the bliss of blamelessness. And to me, it's like that feeling of, well, you could look at any part of my life and I wouldn't be afraid of what you would see. That kind of feeling. I mean, maybe I don't want you to read all my email, but but you know what I mean, that if somebody could go in your email program or you think if they could go in your closet or if they could go, some of the more hidden parts of our life, uh, what would they see there? And would you feel frightened? If, or anxious if you knew somebody was going through your apartment right now. Not with the intention to steal or mess up, but just to look. Um, and I don't mean that in that more um, primitive sense of, you know, did you throw your laundry on the floor? I, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something deeper that has to do with the secrets that we keep from ourselves and from each other. And the intention with this practice of mindfulness, um, one definition of mindfulness could be honesty, just the truth of things as they are and the willingness to see that. Uh, And that sense of um, 
can we be that honest and can we be that transparent? Because after all, that's what we're asking of the people who come to consult. That's what you're asking of the people who come to consult with you in psychotherapy. At least they're headed in that direction. Um, it's said that when, in terms of psychoanalysis, when you can really free associate, that is when you can really let the mind flow and unfold and give voice to anything that might be there, that might emerge in the context of that relationship, that your analysis is over, you're done. Because there's no more impediment to being that open and transparent, at least with someone we trust. And of course, I'm talking about um, doing this in the context of, of trusting relationship. So I want to read you a story this is a story that was given to me by my friend Warren Bennis, who has uh, written a lot of books about leadership and business. And he's 84, and he's, uh, he has great stories. And he finds them everywhere. This one is from The New Yorker. Uh, I was looking at some of the magazines out there, the Canadian ones. I don't know what your equivalent is to The New Yorker, but a magazine that has cartoons and stories, and I all read The New Yorker. Um, so this is from The New Yorker in 2005. It's a story from the Iraq War. A small unit of American soldiers was walking along the street in Najaf when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of the buildings on either side. Fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the Americans, who glanced at one another in terror. The Iraqis were shrieking. They were frantic with rage. This is it, I thought. A shot will come from somewhere. The Americans will open fire. And the world will witness the Malay massacre of the Iraq war. At that moment, an American officer stepped through the crowd, holding his rifle high over his head with the barrel pointed to the ground. Against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a striking gesture, almost biblical. Take a knee, the officer said, impassive behind surfer sunglasses. The soldiers looked at him as if he was crazy. Then, one after another, swaying in their bulky armor and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns to the ground. The Iraqis fell silent and their anger subsided. The officer ordered his men to withdraw. The officer in charge was Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes. The New Yorker reporter tracked him down months later at his home in Iowa to find out who taught him how to tame a crowd like that. He said that the obvious solution was simply, quote, a gesture of respect. Shortly after that fraught experience in Najaf, the new army chief of staff at that time, General Shinseki, concluded that its officers were not prepared to innovate in this incoherent asymmetrical war and that most of the training manuals in use were non-essential and meaningless. 
I love this story because it shows that what this young lieutenant colonel experienced was respect for what was true, for the anger and rage of the Iraqis in Najaf. And it also demonstrates what we're practicing for, the capacity to be present with experience as it arises, no matter how terrifying, and to trust our good heart, to trust that somewhere from us can emerge a gesture of respect. His willingness to see the situation honestly for what it was and to realize, I mean, whatever he realized, he was, he, he developed a wise response and a response that I would call not just respectful but actually loving, um, not in the, you know, hug-kiss feeling but just in the sense of that much profound respect for the suffering and terror of other human beings and seeing what would help, really intuitively seeing what would help. And, of course, in your various uh, work contexts and consulting offices and stuff, it's not always that dramatic what happens, but it can be pretty dramatic in terms of people coming in just boiling with unbearable affect and our ability to tolerate, to be with, to be present with, I mean, tolerate, again, from a distance. I mentioned at the end of yesterday that a lot of this practice is about finding the right distance to be from our own suffering and that of all those who come to, uh, come to us with their suffering that we want to come very close to experience and be intimate with it. But at the same time, we need to have that space of awareness, of mindful awareness. Otherwise, I mean, it's like uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, he used to say, uh, he had this expression called idiot compassion. And I really loved that expression because to me it meant... um, really non-discerning compassion, that knee-jerk, just having to take care of other people instead of being able to pause, just that sacred pause of mindfulness and really look at the situation and see what is being called for. And he said, to be open to the train, you don't have to stand in front of it. And that's a very helpful, um, well, for me, very helpful hint. Um, so this this gesture of respect that the young colonel made, he embodied these elements of the practice that we were naming yesterday as being essential ones for the therapist. And he also, um, it was as though he made a bow to the situation, a bow to what's so. The... There are three kinds of sila in the classical teachings. There's the sila of restraint. And I'm going to talk about these things, not just from our outer lives, but from an inner or contemplative understanding too. The sila of restraint, that's the one we usually think of when we think of ethics and 
we think of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not do this and that and the other thing. That would cause harm. In <coughs> the um, equivalent in Buddhist tradition are the five mindfulness trainings or the five precepts, which you probably know about. Um, not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, not lying and not abusing drugs and alcohol. And so the sila of restraint is, um, well, restraining ourselves from doing things that we know are going to be confusing and and self-destructive or harmful to others. And this is, I think, where people, especially young people, can get rebellious in relation to the precepts. I know I always did. And I think that the thing that helped me back in my 20s as a young meditator was realizing, oh, these are actually recipes for helping me keep my mind clear, you know, for helping me so that when I sit down, I'm not consumed with regret and I'm not obsessively reviewing um, the things I did that I shouldn't have. So that helped me to see them as kind of recipe for clarity and as a protection for the clarity of our meditation. Then there's the sila of cultivation. And that's how, uh, that's when I would really frame the five mindfulness trainings or the five precepts in a more positive light. So that instead of not killing, we would say cherishing all life. That's the gesture of respect bowing to all life, no matter how frightened or enraged or scary or unpleasant uh, its manifestation might be, that we aren't trying to annihilate it, um, disavow, split off, deny um, anything that appears in our consciousness. That's the contemplative inner understanding. Um, You know, how many of you have ever practiced or read in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition well, they have um, a way of talking in teachings. They say there's the, um, the outer, inner, and secret meaning of things. And I like this framework. So we would look at the sila of restraint. That would be the outer meaning. You know, that we don't go around lying and cheating and getting drunk and making messes and so forth. Um, and then there's the inner meaning that we cherish this life of all worlds, that we have a reverence for life in all its forms, that we don't try and kill or annihilate our own feelings or thoughts. Uh, We work with them more skillfully so that we can then welcome and work with those of others more skillfully. And in this seal of cultivation, it's not just about not stealing. It's about appreciating what's given and cultivating gratitude as we were doing when we began the morning, just experiencing the gratitude to be able to be here together and do this. And there's another inner meaning of not stealing that is interesting, I think, for all of us. And it has to do with not comparing ourselves to others. So much suffering is caused by the comparing mind that we compare our meditation practice or we compare ourselves as clinicians or we compare ourselves as um, just people and we look at each other and we kind of... I mean, the mind just does it. It's so fast. Uh, I remember once in a long meditation retreat, 
being astonished that that was sort of still going on. And I, I was talking, my teacher at that time was um, the Vipassana teacher, Joseph Goldstein, in that retreat. And I remember kind of sheepishly saying, you know, my mind, it's just, there's all this comparing going on. You know, I look at um, Narayan and she's sitting for, looks like three hours straight, you know, and I'm just feeling like such a um, slouch of a practitioner or, you know, these kinds of thoughts. And he said, oh, the comparing mind is the last one to go. That made me feel great. You know, I'm on the threshold of enlightenment suddenly. Instead of just some, you know, uh, low self-esteem comparing person. Um, It was a very beautiful reframe. But it is true that it's said in the teachings. And that comparing is a way of stealing from ourselves. That's the point I wanted to make. And, um, And there's... The mind, there's an expression in Zen, the mind is a thief. Why would that expression, what do you think that means? What's your guess about what that's pointing to? And you're not allowed to guess, Michael. He's a Zen student, he can't guess. I mean, among many other things. Well, it steals our uh, our time, it steals our awareness, it steals our ability to be right now. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, I remember again, you know, in that same long retreat, I was, um, you know, the idea was to have continuity of mindfulness day and night, day and night. And I was in my uh, meeting with my teacher, and he said, So tell me what you're doing in the periods that aren't formal practice periods of sitting and walking and eating. And I, I reflected and I thought, Oh, well, um, I go back to my room often. And he said, well, w- what do you do when you're back in your room? And I quickly reviewed what I would be able to tell him of what I did when I was alone in my room. And, uh, and I said, well, actually, I guess I, I look at my stuff. <laughs> I rearrange my stuff. I putter in my room. And the look on his face when I said I putter, and, I mean, I was just talking about maybe, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of the day, but... The look on his face was of such dismay. You putter <laughs> in your room. And, and I could just suddenly, I got it. It's like, this is, how hard did I work to get the time to have this retreat? You know, how hard and how expensive was it? And how, and I am puttering in my room. And of course, puttering is pleasurable in a certain way, but it's also an incredible waste of time. And there's something kind of compulsive about trying to fill the emptiness of a practice period with just, you know, rearranging your stuff. Now, you can understand this as a metaphor and relate to it from your own lives when you have a moment. Ah, a moment. What do you do with that moment? So that's one way of stealing. We steal time from ourselves, yes. Another way is that and you probably know this from your meditation practice, you'll have an insight, something will come to you. And then the mind comes in and starts talking about it. Wow, uh, that was a really cool insight, and I wonder if I'll have another one later on. And, well, this is a four-day retreat we're having, so chances are I will. And that's, I guess, what they... Or you have um, a moment of space and openness and clarity when everything has just, for a moment, 
fallen, take things are just resting in their proper places, and you're in that space of joy and peace and serenity. And then the mind comes in, right? Anyway, these are all different aspects of ways that we can steal insight time um, from ourselves. And so the cultivation of the second mindfulness training is of gratitude, of appreciation, and of when these um, stealing moments appear, not trying to annihilate them, but not uh, going with them either. And the third training, the sila of cultivation, could be understood as, um, well, not engaging in sexual misconduct. I don't think most of you are being sexual with your uh, clients or students or anything egregious like that, but um, to be aware of how we are in this dimension of our being and to be aware of appreciating this source of so much powerful energy. And again, with that bow of respect, uh, with that intention uh, not to take for granted our own virtue or the idea that we could never even cross a line subtly with a little look or just a little flirty remark you know, but how how attuned and mindful uh, and respectful can we be? And then we are free to really appreciate the movements of attraction, of aversion, of indifference too. But um, who in this room has never felt attracted to a patient or a client? We're human beings. We're alive. We're not corpses, right? So... We don't need to be afraid of those energies when we really trust our foundation in sila and respect. It's a freedom to then feel them. Um, a friend of mine who is a psychoanalyst was describing working with um, somebody who is in an intense erotic transference to her and just sits and looks at her and says, you know, I just really like looking at your breasts and your T-shirt. and You know, just gives voice to all of this. And she said, and she's a seasoned clinician, she said, it's amazing how difficult it is to sit with this sometimes and how full of counter-transference feelings I become. And can I feel all right about that? And in some ways, I don't think any of us are true clinicians until we've lived through moments like that, whether it's sexual energy or envy or, you know, just these intensity, um, opening ourselves to the intensity of what people uh, bring in the service of their healing. Then the sila of restraint is that we don't tell lies. That's not so hard most of the time. Um, but what about making the effort to really speak mindfully and listen deeply? To see that as a part of telling the truth, that we are listening also for the truth. Um, and I recently had a very humbling experience where I told a lie to protect somebody, self-esteem. 
And it was a lie of omission, but still it wasn't true. What I said wasn't true. I mean, I could rationalize it was partly true, but it wasn't 100% true. And I noticed how anxious I felt after doing that. You know, when you do this practice for a long time, it's, again, to quote Trungpa Rinpoche, he said, it's actually, it's kind of like climbing into the mouth of, I think he said an alligator or a crocodile, but you could say a shark too, anywhere where the teeth are pointed in. It's like those, I don't know if they have them here, those things where you, you can't back up or it'll shred your tires, you know, those things coming out of the pavement in the parking lot. Um, and he says, like, starting spiritual practice, really getting on the spiritual path, it's like, you know, doing that because you, you get in and then suddenly you realize, oh, my God, what have I done? And I've taken these refuge vows and bodhisattva vows, and does that mean I have to be kind all the time? Or does that mean I really have to only take refuge in wholesome, healthy things? Oh, my God, what have I done? And maybe I'll just <clears throat> back up a little bit, but you can't. You just can't. It's like what I was saying, you know, the beginner's mind. You can't be a beginner when you've had a lot of experience. You can't be a virgin when you're not. And when you know these things that you encounter in your meditation practice, and you start to become more and more sensitive to who you are and your whole, the whole mandala of your life situation, it, <laughs> that instant karma, you know, you, it, it just comes back faster. So I did this thing and I said it. And I was very anxious. And sure enough, she, I forgot that she actually, this person actually does have access to my computer and pretty much everything on it. And she found a document that revealed that omission. And it was a very, very painful but important experience to have because I always pride myself on never deceiving people and, and always telling the truth and I'm just laughing because it can happen. I think what I'm trying to share with you is it can happen. And the intention was good, but still it happened. Um, So this fourth one about the truth. uh, In the meditation instruction, when I was saying to you, you know, we're here and we're practicing being here. And that means letting go of our fantasies. They're usually more pleasant than the reality because usually the reason we slip off into fantasy is that it's a little boring the meditation at that moment or we're a little tired or our leg hurts and we don't feel like exploring those sensations and so mind goes somewhere else and why do we come back over and over well we understand we're training in attention and we're developing our power of attention and concentration and we're building that skill but the other reason is, I have this quote that I love. Um, this is from Joko Beck. I take refuge in the truth of what is because there's no safety or refuge in what isn't. <laughs> so we come back to what is because it's true, not because it's necessarily a better place or more pleasant place to be. And the uh, fourth aspect of the sila of cultivation, obviously, 
nobody was too hungover to get here today, so that's not that big of a problem in your life. You made it here on time. But there are other ways that we uh, use substances to intoxicate or distract ourselves. And that's trickier to look at, to appreciate that freedom, that bliss of blamelessness, that that non-anxiety. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about appreciating the non-toothache, you know, really appreciating the times when we don't feel bad or have a toothache, appreciating times when we're not anxious because we've done something wrong. Um, And the ability it gives us to drink life straight up, uh, to really not have to mediate our experience, take the edge off uh, with various uh, substances. And it can be food, it can be all kinds of things that uh, email, I mean, it can be all kinds of things that we use not to be with ourselves. And, and I think, too, when we're asking those we work with, our students and clients, patients, whatever you, however you refer to the people who consult with you in your professional role, uh, I ask people to do some very difficult things. Um, and then I have to ask myself, can I do that thing? Can I give up chocolate? And there's nothing wrong with chocolate, but sometimes I sort of have to have it in the late afternoon to keep going, or at least it feels that way. And what happens if I, can I give up something that it feels like I, that have to, you know, I have to have it. Um, in our, to be in our integrity, it's really great to experiment, to experiment with that. What it's like to, we ask people to shift from unhealthy to healthy states and and what it's like for us to try and do that. And then the last form of sila is called adi sila. And it's, the, it's what the Tibetans would call the secret or mystical meaning. And that's where we are so present and intimate with our life and experience that it's unthinkable to separate out from experience and do any of those things that would disrespect reality as it is. Because when I fudged with that person recently, that was a gesture of disrespect, although it wasn't intended that way. It was a gesture of disrespect for the reality of what was true that I felt, in a way, was disrespecting her, too, by assuming she couldn't handle that without a big drop in her confidence and self-esteem. So the Adi Sila is when we're so, those moments when we're so connected, you know, we just, we see the luminous, the light around us. And instead of seeing maybe that the window is dusty and it should, they didn't really wash it much, we just see that square of light and we're so uh, close to experience that there's no possibility for anything but uh, respect. There's a Zen koan that I love, um, and it goes like this. A monk asks Unmun, the Zen master, how is it when all the leaves have fallen and the tree is bare? 
So he's really asking about what's it like when all those thoughts and leaves and (laughs) everything that protects us has fallen away and there's just that kind of nakedness with experience. And we don't know, was he a little bit anxious when he asked that question or was it a testing question? We don't know, but we can be that monk and ask ourselves, how is it? How would it be if we really let go of everything that holds us back? What would that be like if we really let it all go? And Unmun says, there are different translations. How would it be when the leaves have fallen and the the tree is bare, when the leaves have withered? And and Unmun says, um, body exposed to the golden wind. And this is a very interesting response, too. In the Korean tradition, when I practiced, the right answer to that koan uh, was, you know, when the leaves have all fallen, the tree is bare, and then the golden wind is blowing, what would that be like? And then you would manifest like, brrr, you know, that would be chilly, right? The wind is blowing and there's no... But I think it's such a deeper, deeper, deeper um, understanding that's possible with this one. Like, what is that golden wind? What do you think it might be? Anything. I'm not the Zen master, and you're not in an interview dokusan sanzen, although we could say every moment of life is an interview dokusan sanzen, how are you going to respond to it? But you can just guess. What does it mean to you is really what I'm asking, not what is the right answer, because the right answer has to do with uh, your understanding in relation to your situation. Does anybody want to guess? That image, I think of golden wind. I think of polishing. It's like the final polishing as the wind goes over the the, uh, the wood to bring out the fullness of the grain. That's beautiful. Like we don't get rain much in LA, and then when it rains, everything is so crystal clear. You realize it was dusty before, but you didn't notice the dust till it rained. <laughs> And the rain dried. Yeah. Anybody else have an understanding you want to share? Just that, that wind keeps things moving. It keeps blowing. So I never thought of that. That's a nice one. I mean, for me, I think my, my closeness to that one came during a time of great loss. Uh, great loss and then asking myself what's left when you've lost something you loved so much or thought you couldn't live without uh, then what's left and if we're willing to really sit with that what's left um, then we discover the true meaning of the dharma And the true meaning of the Dharma, well, I'll tell you with a story. Uh, My friend, uh, J.V., she was a monk with um, Tetsugen, Bernie Glassman, for 10 years 
and she she was in charge of the bakery that they had and training homeless people in the bakery. But part of her job was also before they were doing so much social action and they were actually meditating. Um, her job was to she would get to drive, pick up various visiting teachers and drive them around. And this very venerable Roshi, which means venerable teacher, old teacher, had come from Japan and it was her job to drive him to upstate New York to wherever they were going. And she's a very smart, mischievous person. And she said, so Roshi, what's, I want to know the answer to the last, I want to know the last koan. I want to know the answer. I want you to tell me. And she was kind of teasing him. And, but that is like saying, you know, I want to know the, uh, well, the questions on my PhD orals ahead of time or something. Um, and he said to her, I won't tell you the last koan, but I will tell you the answer to the last koan. <laughs> and he said, the answer is love. I love that story. Um, and I think that, too, about you know this, when we're willing to, the Adi Sila, when we're really not carrying our own agenda forward, we're willing to drop it, then that sense of intuitive connection and um, harmony, harmonious participation, just presence that way with experience does help us respond in the most respectful, like in Najaf, or loving way. Uh, in a, and it can be quite, we say intuitive, but it's another word for spontaneous, too. Uh, quite, quite wonderful to begin to trust our own uh, spontaneity in that way. Uh, so different from reactivity, isn't it? And so I think that wisdom and compassion or love, whatever you want to call it, that comes out of that experience of uh, not being, not separating out uh, by thinking about experience from a self-centered point of view, that is, uh, it's related to what another beloved Zen teacher of mine taught me once. I went to him. This was when I worked at the school for severely emotionally disturbed kids. It was such a stressful job. Um, Definitely a job for young people. And I mean, these kids, they just had sonar for whatever buttons you had that you didn't want to be pushed. You know, I remember my co-teacher, Alan, he just had this great aversion to snot and boogers. And so they would always wipe them on him. They never, (laughs) nobody ever wiped a booger on me the whole time that I was at the school because I didn't care. And then, but I had a great attachment to and loved to take care of the plants in our classroom. So when they wanted to get at me, they would just tear a branch off a plant. Um, Or, well, I don't have to go into all of that. But um, I went to Coben and I said, 
you know, what is the best, what, how can I help these kids? It was really, that was a very sincere question. I thought maybe somebody who's not in Western psychology would have a great insight for me. And he said, the best way to help is with no idea of helping. So that too, I was like, but I, I think I, I think even in the moment, I kind of understood what he meant. Um, what do you think he meant? Some different people guess. What do you think he meant by that? The best way to help is with no idea of helping. Maybe to drop your own ideas of what help means and how it translates, what you want to see as a result. You mean you're bringing your own idea of what should happen. And what it should look like. Yes. Yes. And then something else, too, I think he was talking about. Yeah. Then it clears room for more genuine, like, spontaneous response, but like Michael was talking about yesterday. Right. When you stop that, then something else will allow the question to Right. And I think there was another another element to it even if if somebody wants to think of it are you raising your hand yeah oh, I'm I just wondering if we go in with help there's a sense of well they need to be fixed exactly mm-hmm. and there's also a sense of I know how to fix them mm-hmm. so it's kind of me up here and you down there but, right that's the other piece of it too um do you know who Sister Helen Préjean is? She wrote, um, she's the one who was in Dead Man Walking. She oh. worked with the death row inmates. And I read an interview with her, I, I don't, and with all of the quotes and things I brought, I didn't seem to bring it, but what she, she was talking about, the interviewer asked her, you know, how, how can you do this work of walking with these men who are going to be executed. And she said, when I look into their eyes, I see another human being. And I long to be present with them. And she talked also about how she wanted to be present with them, but also with their victims' families and how the families most often would not let her help them because they couldn't understand how she could be helping the convicted um, prisoner and even approach you know, them and expect to help them. And she said, but of course, her heart was big enough to encompass the suffering of both. And what she talked about that was also very inspiring to me, she said, you know, when your small boat gets caught up on a wave of something that's just so much bigger than you are, it's carried by that wave. And somehow the small boat of each one of us gets caught up on this wave of compassion or longing to be of service or to help in this life in some way. And it really is bigger than the me that was worrying about how to help. 
um, it's sort of like when there's no, when we don't separate ourselves from others, we experience their suffering, not in that idiot compassion sense of getting overwhelmed or getting so close that we're disabled as a helper, but with enough um, presence of mind and heart, with our sila, samadhi, and prajna, uh, getting so close that uh, we can intuitively sense what what is needed. Um, So I think I'd like to open up. I actually have trouble. The lights are on that clock, so I can't really see the time there. Um, yeah, thank you. We have 20 minutes, and where is my little outline? Okay. So I actually would like to open up for some questions and discussion with you, I can keep talking. You know, look around me. I just have so, I have my whole life of (laughs) practice to offer to you. (laughs) More than you want to know, probably. (laughs) But maybe not. (laughs) Um, So, I'd like to just uh, open up.